Well, today I want to talk to you about this first message in our series, Psalms, Being Honest with God. I want to talk to you about being honest with God when you have sinned. Now, I know that doesn't apply to most of us here this morning, but for a couple of you, you may want to pay attention. I remember hearing a lady tell a story about she was teaching a children's Sunday school group about Christian behavior and about living for God and doing right by God and other people. And so at the end of the class, she, she asked, all right, boys and girls, tell me what we've learned today. And then she pointed. She said, Billy, let me ask you a question. What do you have to do to get God to forgive you of your sins? And without hesitation, Billy said, first you got to sin. And uh, so I think Billy's right. You know, first you got to sin. And I think most of us have that down pat. I think most of us are good at that. We're not amateur sinners. We're professional sinners. I mean, we, we kind of know how to do that well. But you know, even as Christians, we still sin. We still disobey God. We don't do what God wants us to do. Sometimes we don't love him like we should. We don't do the things he tells us we ought to do. And sometimes we sin against other people. And what do we do when we have sinned? It was the late actor and comedian Chris Farley of Saturday Night Live fame and, and other movies who was interviewed the year of his death by a Rolling Stones magazine reporter. And the reporter was concerned for Chris. He, he asked him, aren't you afraid of this wild lifestyle you're living? You're known for your partying. You're known for your drugging and alcohol. Aren't you afraid? In fact, he, he reminded him, your hero is John Belushi. He died at the age of 33. Aren't you afraid of dying? And in the interview, Chris Farley made the statement, there's only one who's in control. He'll take me when he's ready. I don't want to know about it. It's none of my business. I just hope he'll forgive my sins. Have you ever wondered, will God forgive my sin when you have messed up, when you've blown it, when you've made a mistake, or maybe you've made more than one mistake, and you wonder, could God ever forgive me? That's the question that all of us wrestle with. Could God forgive me when I've blown it, when I've made a mess of my life? Can God forgive me of my unfaithfulness? Can God forgive me of the way I've treated other people? Can God forgive me of that shady business deal? Can God forgive me of all of those things that I know but no one else knows and I'm always afraid will come out into the open? Could God ever forgive me when I've made a mistake? Is there a way back to God whenever I have strayed? Is there a way to be restored when I have fallen? Well, the good news is we can look at the life of a man named David for an example of how there is a way back, even when you've messed up your life. His name was David. He was one of the greatest kings of Israel ever, one of the most godly people ever, ruled in so many ways in righteousness. And yet there came a time in his life where he just blew it, made a mess of his life. He should have been at war, leading his troops, but instead he's lounging around the palace, laying in bed all day. One evening he gets up and he walks out on his balcony of his palace and he starts looking over his kingdom and he looks down and he sees one of the homes near his and there is a woman there and she's bathing and not only does he look but he lingers and not only does he look and linger it turns into lust and he sees a beautiful woman and he wants her for himself and so he commands his service to bring that woman to him and he commits adultery with her, even though her husband, Uriah, was one of David's own soldiers right at that time out fighting for God, king, and kingdom. 
David sends her back, thinking no one will ever know. Until he gets a note later from her, a few months later, I'm pregnant. Now what are you going to do? And so David begins to conspire in his mind how he can conceal his sin. So he comes up with this plan. I will call her husband home from the battlefront. And after all, what man wouldn't want to spend a, a few days and a few nights with his wife after having been gone for so long? And the natural course of marriage will take care of itself. And then everyone will assume that the baby that Bathsheba is carrying is Uriah, her husband's. But the plan goes awry when Uriah comes home and refuses to sleep with his wife because he says, it's not right. My men are out there fighting, putting their lives on the line and dying for God, king, and kingdom. And I'm not going to do this. David then realizes things are desperate. My whole reputation is about to be ruined. And so believe it or not, he takes one step deeper into sin by conspiring a plan to send Uriah back out to the battlefield, put him in a position where there is a no way to win, knowing that Uriah will be killed. He conspires to have his own friend Uriah killed. Then David decides once he's dead, I will take the widow as my own wife, and everyone will think what a great man I am, that I reached out to her and cared for her in her time of need, and I adopted her child as my own, and no one will ever know my sin. And that's the plan. And then again, more months go by after Uriah's death, and one day God sends a preacher, a prophet named Nathan, to David. And Nathan tells David a story. He said, there were two men who lived in a certain village. One of them was very wealthy. He had a lot of lambs and cattle. And then there was a poor man. He barely had anything. In fact, he only had one little ewe lamb. That lamb was so precious to him. That lamb was more than a pet. It became like a family member. Ate the meager food of the family. Drank from the man's cup. Played with the man's children. It was like a family member. So dear and near. One day, a traveler comes in to visit the wealthy man. And instead of taking one of his many lambs or his many cattle and killing it and feeding the guest, instead, the rich man took the poor man's one and only little lamb and killed it and fed it to the traveler. And whenever the prophet Nathan reached this point of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David becomes indignant David says, as the Lord God lives, that man ought to die. He ought to have to pay four lambs for the one that he took from this poor man. And I think in one of the most dramatic moments in all of Scripture, Nathan the prophet puts his finger in the face of the king and says, you are the man. This story is about you. You took... Uriah's one and only wife for yourself. And in that moment, David realizes everything he's tried to do to conceal his grievous sin has now been laid bare before him and he is brought to the point of breaking and he just cries, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And what do you do when you sinned against the Lord? You do what David did. We have the privilege of looking at David's song. The, the word psalm just means song. The book of Psalms is just a book of Hebrew hymns that they would sing to God. And they would bring their emotions and their experiences to God in prayer, in praise, in repentance, in confession, in hope. Expressing everything in their heart to God as an act of faith, calling on God. And I want to take you to this psalm that David wrote following the exposure of his sin with Bathsheba. It's called Psalm 51. So if you have your Bible, open it to Psalm 51 or... Or swipe to it or whatever you need to do to get to Psalm 51. I'll even put the words on the screen today. Because what God did in the life of David, when David came clean with God and God forgave him, is exactly what God wants to do in your life when you've sinned against God. I don't know who you are. I don't know what's harbored in your heart. But I know this about my God. He has forgiveness and grace and mercy that is available to all who will sincerely ask for it. And if, Dave, if God could do this in David's life, to restore him after he fell in such an ugly way, God can restore you. God can forgive you. In fact, what I want to do today from Psalm 51 is give you four steps to spiritual recovery when you've sinned. If you'll look at the heading of Psalm 51 in your Bible, you may read some words like this. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. This is the setting where David has been exposed. The first step to spiritual recovery when you have sinned is to admit your sin and come clean with God. Admit your sin and come clean with God. We're about to hear David admit that what he has done is wrong. He doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. She shouldn't have been out there. She should have been covered up. He, he doesn't blame the way he was raised. He doesn't blame his culture. Instead, you hear him admitting his sin and coming clean with God. Psalm 51 verse 1, he prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Do you hear that? He's admitting his sin. He's coming clean with God and being honest with God about what he's done. And he's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for mercy. Now we know the definition of grace, G-R-A-C-E. It's the unmerited love of God. It's what God gives us even though we don't deserve it. But what is mercy? If grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve, mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. When we deserve punishment and God withholds it from us, that is God being merciful. And David is crying out, God, have mercy on me. Not according to who I am, not according to my reputation, not according to my resume, not according to all the things that I've done. God, I don't deserve your mercy. I want you to be merciful according to your steadfast love, your loyal, covenant-keeping love. God, I've not been loyal to you, but I'm calling on that loyal love that you have for me. God, I've not been faithful to you, but I'm calling on you who were always faithful to me. Have mercy on me. 
And according to your abundant mercy, because I know you're not only merciful, you're abundant in mercy, I want you to blot out my transgressions. You don't have to take a semester of Hebrew to know what it means to blot out his transgressions. It means to blot out his transgressions. David has in his mind the legal indictment that could be written against him that would stand up in any court of law. And with that idea, with that imagery of a written indictment against him, he's saying, oh God, would you please just blot it out? I know I've done wrong, but can you erase it? Can you give me a second chance? Will you forgive my sin based on your mercy? I spoke to a young man. He was in his 30s. We had lunch together, and I was just talking to him, learning about his great life, great family, very successful and prosperous in his business. And then he said, Pastor Ricky, I just need you to know something. My life has not always been like this. I was raised in a very troubled home, and I made some very poor decisions as a teenager. And I broke the law, and I hurt people. And I spent several years in juvenile detention. But because I did my time and because of the mercy of the judge, it was declared that when I turned 18, my record was expunged. My crimes were blotted out. And it didn't follow me into my adulthood. And if it hadn't been for the mercy of a judge giving me a second chance... I probably wouldn't be here today in the man I am today. And dear friend, that's what God wants to do. And that's what God is, David is asking God to do. God, would you blot out my transgressions? Look at verse 2. He also asked, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David feels spiritually dirty. He feels defiled. That's what sin does to us. It never makes us better. It may feel good for the moment, but ultimately, whenever it's all said and done, sin just leaves you feeling dirty and guilty and ashamed. And David is saying, God, wash me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And do you notice how he's admitting his sin to God? And do you notice how he, he describes it? In verse 1, he calls it my transgressions. In verse 2, he calls it my iniquity. In verse 2, he calls it my sin. He's calling it transgression. A transgression, according to that Hebrew word, is to go beyond a prescribed limit, to break a boundary, to cross a boundary that you weren't allowed to cross. If you know your Roman history... As long as Julius Caesar stayed to the north of the Rubicon, he was at peace with the Roman Senate. But as soon as he crossed the Rubicon, which they had forbidden, war existed between him and the Roman Empire. And God has clearly laid out his will for us in our lives, and he's spelled out what's in limits and out of limits for us. And so often we go beyond what God allows. And David is saying, God, blot out my transgressions. Then he, he talks about his iniquity. Iniquity is something which has been perverted. It is something good, but it has been twisted into something bad. Sexuality, for example, is a good thing. It is a gift from God. This will blow your mind. The first person who ever had a sexual thought was God. He created it. But so often we twist and pervert what God means for good. Bathsheba was off limits to David. But that perversion is what he's asking for cleansing from. And then my sin. 
literally means to miss the mark. God draws a bullseye. Here's what I expect of you. Here's how you ought to live. And yet we miss the mark. And we sin. And we don't live up to what God's called us to. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't live up to his standard. And David is saying, God, I need to admit to you and come clean with you what I've done. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I've tried to keep myself busy so I wouldn't think about it, but everywhere I turn, I think of my sin. I, I go to bed at night and I hope I can find some respite, but I dream or I just toss and turn because of my guilt and my shame. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Sometimes people read that and say, well, how could he say against you and you only have I sinned? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the nation of Israel that he was supposed to be their righteous leader. Because what happens in your private life, even as a leader, will affect your public life. At least that's what I've heard. So how could he say against you, you only, God? David's not minimizing his harm to Bathsheba. He's not minimizing the death of Uriah. He's not minimizing how he has breached the trust of the people of Israel by not being the righteous leader that he promised God he would be. But what he is acknowledging is that when he sinned against other people, he sinned against people created by God and in the very image of God. And when we hurt each other, we're hurting each other and we commit crimes or we do immoral things. But when we sin against each other before the eyes of God, it's a sin. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Leviticus chapter 19, we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. And David didn't do either of those and he sinned against God. And maybe no one knows your sin. Maybe nobody knows what you've done. Or maybe it's public. Either way, it's time to admit your sin and come clean with God. And then he continues in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying it's my mama's fault. What he is saying is that since Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, we have all been born with a sin nature. You don't have to teach a little toddler how to be selfish. You have to teach them how to not be selfish. Because we are all born with a sin nature. And what David is saying is, God, if I'm ever going to receive mercy, if I'm ever going to be cleansed, if I'm ever going to be right with you again, you're going to have to do it because there's nothing good in me that can make this happen. God, I have been shapen in iniquity. Nothing good is in me. If anything good is going to come out of this experience, you're going to have to do it by your grace. And aren't you grateful that according to the New Testament, the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that not a great promise of God? That forgiveness is available to everyone who sincerely asks for it. So the first step in recovering when you have sinned is admit your sin and come clean with God. The second step is ask for and accept God's forgiveness. Ask for and accept God's forgiveness. 
Often we ask for it, but we don't accept it because we don't want to take God at his word that he will forgive and that he will cleanse. David continues his psalm, verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In other words, it's time for me to come clean, God. That's what you demand. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a, a little shrub that would grow in the cracks and crevices of stone walls all throughout Israel. Very common to find these little uh, green shrubs growing out of the cracks of a wall. And the Jewish people would often take those in their ceremonial cleansing uh, services and they would take those and dip them in blood and sprinkle that blood of an innocent animal as a symbol that for me to be forgiven and for God to still be righteous... Sin has to be punished. So God is righteous. He's going to punish a sin, a sinner. But God is also gracious. He lets someone be our substitute to take our punishment. And all through the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system of lambs was to picture that one day God's going to send the substitute for sinners. These are just foreshadowings. These are just pictures. These are just symbols of what God's going to ultimately do for all sinners when he sends a substitute for sinners. Now, does it make sense to you why whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him at the River Jordan, that John cries out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus will be our substitute. Jesus will take our punishment. David doesn't understand all of this. He just knows that somewhere, somehow, he needs a substitute for sin. And he says, purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. He's looking forward to that sacrifice that God will provide. We look back on it over 2,000 years. And when God forgives, he doesn't just sweep it under the rug and say, well, it was never such a big deal anyway, let's just not talk about it. No, when God forgives you, it is because he allowed Jesus to take the punishment you deserve. You receive cleansing and forgiveness. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is speaking metaphorically here. God didn't break his bones, but he felt like every bit of his body, every fiber of his being was hurting under the weight of his guilt and his shame. You could read Psalm 32 where he describes it. The whole time I covered my sin, he says in Psalm 32, you wouldn't let me rest. You chastened me and you buffeted me. And by the way, even that is a gift of God. When God chastens us when we're in sin and he won't let us enjoy it, instead we're miserable it's the warning light on the dashboard of your soul where God is saying, this ain't right. You got a problem. It's time to get this fixed. God wouldn't say he ain't because you know, he uses proper English. But you get the point. And David is saying, let me hear joy and gladness. And that's the whole lie of sin. Sin says, oh, sin will make you happy. Just enjoy life. Some of you thought you could party your way into joy and you discovered it took every good thing away from you. 
every good thing, your peace, your purity, even your health, and sin, if it has its way, will take your life. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. God, forgive me, cleanse me, turn away from my sin and blot out my iniquities. So, number one, admit your sin and come clean with God. Number two, ask for and accept God's forgiveness. Number three, here's the third step of spiritual restoration when you've sinned. And that's request a fresh work of God's restoring grace. Request a fresh work of God's restoring grace. We'll see that in verses 10 through 12. David prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. God, I'm spiritually defiled and dirty. Create in me a clean heart. And God, would you renew a right spirit within me from the moment I committed that sin. I've not been right. I've not been right with you. I've not been right with others. I've not been right with myself. God, please create a a renewed spirit within me. I want to be who you want me to be. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence And take not your Holy Spirit from me. This has troubled many people who say, oh, see, David says you can lose your salvation. That's not what David's concerned about. David's not thinking about his eternal security here. What David is saying is, God, if I'm ever going to have a new beginning, you're going to have to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I can't do it. There's nothing in me. Don't cast me aside from your presence. You're my only hope. Let your Holy Spirit... Indwell me and empower me because I cannot be the person I need to be without you doing it. David's not concerned about losing his salvation. He's concerned about losing his fellowship with the one true living God who alone can help him be the holy person God desires and requires him to be. The reason I say he's not worried about his salvation is verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. David's not saying restore my salvation. Restore to me the joy of it, Lord. You know who the most miserable people in the world are? Not people who don't know Jesus. It's people who do know Jesus but are living in sin. The Bible is dead to you. Prayer is nothing to you. You go home saying, oh, they don't sing and worship like they used to. No, you're not living for Jesus like you used to. And life is miserable as a result of that. And you need the joy of your salvation restored. And as long as you're holding on and hiding with your sin, you'll never know what it is to be able to come into this place and to sing with joy. In fact, some of the loudest people that sing in this church, (laughs) and and, and people can sing loud, or, be, or, or quietly. People can raise their hands or not and be as sincere in their worship. But sometimes, buddy, when you've had a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit after you've blown it, and he's given you a second chance and he healed your body and gave you a, a, a new start, buddy, you come in here with a little spring in your step. <laughs> Can't wait to get your worship on, right? Because you know how good God has been. And what we need to do is say, God, I can't make up the past. But I pray for a new work of your Holy Spirit in my life today. And then there's a final step, a fourth step that I want you to see in spiritual recovery when you have sinned. And that is resolve to share what you have learned with other sinners. In other words, just resolve to share what you've learned. Because we're all sinners. Here's what David prays in verses 13 through 15. And then we're going to close. He says, then... God, when you've 
been merciful, when you've cleansed, when you've purged, when you've restored, when you've renewed, when you've forgiven, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David says, God, I resolve here and now to turn this mess into a message, to turn my pain into praise, to turn this test that I've failed into a testimony so other sinners can come back to you and receive your forgiveness and your grace like I have. Dear friend, one of the most powerful things you have at your disposal to influence another person for the Lord is your testimony of what God has done in your life. They can argue with me, I'm the preacher. They can argue with a seminary professor. They can argue with the Bible. But they can't argue with you and your personal experience because that's yours. And you need to share it. And God will use it in a way to help other people come back to God. And that's David's plan for spiritual restoration. Admitting his sin, coming clean with God, asking for God's forgiveness and accepting it, requesting a fresh work of God's restoring grace and resolving to share this about God with other sinners. And that may be where you are today. Are you hiding? Are you running? Are you making excuses? I don't believe God brought you here by accident. I believe God is wanting to say to you through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God's word, This is what you need. You need to come back to God. And God's forgiveness is available to all who sincerely ask for it. Based on the finished work of Jesus. Maybe you just need to get along with God. And you just need to turn Psalm 51 from David's psalm to your psalm. Maybe you need to restate his prayer from a sincere heart into your prayer. And know that God hears you when you ask him for forgiveness. Others of you may not even be Christians yet. There's never been that one decisive moment in your life when you admitted to God that you were a sinner and that you, did, you depended on Jesus and Jesus alone to forgive you of your sin and to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe that's the first step for you is to receive him now by faith. The one who died for you was buried and who rose from the dead. So my homework for you this week is to get along with God and just let Psalm 51 speak into your soul as you read it. Maybe read it in a different translation from the English Standard Version. Turn it into your prayer. Keep some of these verses somewhere where you can see them and be reminded of them, of God's loving kindness and his mercy. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if there's anyone who needs to make a spiritual decision that one of us can help you with, we're available to you. In fact, as soon as your legs straighten up, you can make your way to the back of the auditorium where the sign says, what is your next step? And we'll be there to help you take your next step, to trust Jesus as Savior, to get baptized, to join a group, to learn more about membership here at Fort Carolina, or just to have someone to pray with you about something going on in your life. Our guest services, volunteers, and others will be back there to help you in any way that we can. But while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let's just talk to God and then you can be dismissed. God, thank you for Psalm 51. 
Thank you for this wonderful reminder through the life of King David that your forgiveness is available to all who sincerely ask for it. Father, we thank you that, God, you took David's test and turned it into a testimony. I pray, Father, this week, that if right now in this moment, that if there's someone that needs to turn from their sin and ask for your forgiveness, they'll do it right now, right now. Don't have to live in that any longer, but right now can receive your forgiveness by faith. Father, if there's anyone that needs Jesus as Savior, I pray that right now as well they will trust Jesus who died for them, taking their punishment for sin on the cross, who rose from the dead, and who hears them when they pray. And he promised that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, let them not be ashamed, but let them tell someone that today I've received Jesus as my Savior. Others have already done that, but they need to go public with their baptism. Others need to join this church and be partners with us in taking this good message and sharing it with others who need this grace. Whatever it is, God, you'd have us to do, find us faithful and obedient. In this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.